Thanks for listening to the Pioneer Valley Church podcast. Our hope is that what you hear encourages your faith in the way of Jesus and inspires you to participate in what God is up to in the world. God bless. So I might be one of the best people or one of the worst people to talk about being unhurried. And uh, my, my story will be an example of this. So one of the first times I was forced to slow down or forced to be unhurried, if you will, uh, was when I was injured. Um, back in 2016, I was paralyzed from the chest down uh, and I was unable to move most of my body. In fact, I was only really able to move my face and kind of shrug my shoulders a little bit. That's, that's all I was able to do. And after about a month, uh, they finally put me in a wheelchair for the first time. They put me in this big old crane with a net, plopped me down in there. Uh, and I couldn't lift my arms. They weren't strong enough, so I couldn't drive a power chair like I'm doing right now with a joystick. And so what they did instead is they gave me this straw. It was called a sip and puff. And it was pretty cool. If I blew into it once, I'd go forwards. If I had two small puffs, I'd turn to the right. One, I'd go to the left. If I sipped in it, I'd stop. It was awesome. I could finally move for the first time. The only problem with it was is the wheelchair went like 0.2 miles an hour. <laughs> like, it was unbearably slow. I was being passed by 100-year-old nurses that should have retired <laughs> ages ago. Uh, I was. I was, I was being passed by people who were literally learning to walk again, so they were moving at like a snail's pace. Uh, and you can imagine going from a 16-year-old that loved to run around and, and do everything to being forced to move at like a snail's pace. It, it, was, it was so bad, and I just wanted to go fast. And eventually, I did get strong enough. My arms got strong enough that I could move. Uh, I could push a manual chair, or I could drive a power chair. And I remember that they actually turned off the speed limit. Like I could go max speed. Yes. And it was, it was, it was awesome. Like I, I remember I was racing one of my friends in a manual chair literally around the hospital. And it was like, it was like man versus machine. What could go faster? Uh, and I was just zooming. And it felt free. It so, felt so free to go fast. But I'm not going to be talking about why it's good to go fast. I'm going to be talking about why it's good to not go fast. And this is the part of the story that gets there. Uh, Pretty soon after, my chair was on and at max speed. uh, And my mom didn't know this, but she put a pillow on my lap. Uh, And it just gently tapped the joystick of my wheelchair. And it sent me flying into the wall, like max speed. And the foot plate of my wheelchair actually snapped off. Like I hit the wall that hard that I broke like a one inch thick piece of metal. It was crazy. I didn't get hurt, thank God. Uh, Nothing happened. But I didn't have a wheelchair for like, I think like two days after that while they were fixing it. And I say this story to say that going slow is meant to protect us. It was meant to protect me and going slow is meant to protect us. Can you go to the next slide, please? So last week, Elias talked about how Sabbath is meant to do four things. It's supposed to be a period to stop work. It's supposed to be a time to rest. It's supposed to be a day to delight and a space to contemplate. 
And something I noticed, and I think many of you may have noticed as well, is that each of these four things protects a different part of what it means to be human. Can you go to the next slide? So a period to stop work protects our minds. It gets us out of this hurried sickness that we're subjected to by our culture. A time to rest literally protects our bodies. It gives us time to rest and to heal. A day of delight protects our hearts from malice and just anger at the world around us because we so often have to shield ourselves from what's going on in the world. And a space to contemplate protects our spirits. It helps us to think about and connect with God, which ultimately refreshes our spirits like nothing else. And so it's these last two things that I want to talk about today, delighting and contemplating. I think over the last three weeks, we've talked a lot about stopping work uh, and resting. So I want to finish off this series by talking about delighting and contemplating. Does that sound good to everyone? All right. All right. That's great. So last week, Tom Williams asked a great question during the Q&A session. He said, what is contemplation? It sounds really ethereal to me. I, I can't quite place what it looks like. And Elias gave a great answer. He said, contemplation is just turning your attention towards something. And I think that's absolutely true. But I think a lot of the times we can still think of contemplation and delight as meditation in like a dark room with our eyes closed, crisscross applesauce, or, or, or maybe we're doing a yoga pose out in a field going, mm, and just, just meditating on something. And while that is a very valuable way of contemplating and delighting on God and the world around us, I really don't think that's the only way. In fact, two of my favorite philosophers, they're French philosophers, Descartes and Rousseau, they would contemplate in almost the opposite way. They would walk around the city of Paris or whatever city they were in and they'd look at people doing their jobs and they would be like, wow, humanity is really this. Or they would go into their really rich friend's palace gardens and study plants and just be like, this is so cool. It makes me think about all these different things. And really, I think Jesus is calling us to do the same thing not to have our eyes closed and thinking really hard about God, but in fact to have our eyes open and looking for him. So let's look at that. Let's uh, turn our Bibles over to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll look at how Jesus calls us to be open-eyed. So starting in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 6, it says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And so you might be looking at this and seeing what comes right after, how he talks about loving money. Or you might be looking at the little footnotes next to unhealthy and healthy and see that they imply generous and stingy and say, Connor, this is about giving to the poor. And I'd say, yes, you're absolutely right. Jesus is teaching about giving to the poor. But I think if we look at the context of the chapter and thinking about how this is the Sermon on the Mount, I think Jesus is teaching us how to posture ourselves in our lives, 
how to posture ourselves as disciples. If you look right before this, in the chapter, he talks about praying and fasting and giving to the poor and how he introduces each of these topics as when you pray or when you fast. These are expectations that Jesus has for us if we're going to be like him, if we're going to be his disciple. He's saying, if you want to be full of light and joy and peace and be like me, then you need to posture yourselves in this way. Does that make sense? Yes. Amen. All right, so now let's read this again with that mindset of Jesus teaching how to posture ourselves. He says, the eyes are the lamps of the body. If your eyes are healthy, if they're open wide, if they're open to seeing how God is moving around us, if you have wide eyes, your whole body will be full of light. It'll be full of joy. It'll be full of peace, full of hope, full of love. But if your eyes are unhealthy, if they're stingy, if you're short-sighted, focused on yourself or your work or what you need to get done, that next task before you can get your time with God, then your whole body will be full of darkness, full of despair, lack of hope, envy, jealousy, the opposites of being light. And here Jesus warns us. He says, if then that light within you is darkness, if what's supposed to be hope is actually despair, then how great is that darkness going to be? It's all-consuming. He's telling us our eyes and our awareness to how God is moving around us is going to change our lives. If we're open-minded, and looking for how God is moving, then we'll be full of hope. But if we're not, then it's ultimately going to, our lives will be full of despair. And so if we want to be full of joy, full of peace, full of hope, and full of love, if we want to delight and to contemplate, to turn our attention towards God, we need to be slow enough to be wide-eyed and take in God's goodness. Are you tracking with me? Does that make sense? Okay, amen. So to delight and to contemplate on God, we need to be unhurried. Amen. So let's look at two examples. One of a man who is does, or who does not have healthy eyes and whose body is full of darkness, and then another whose eyes are healthy and whose body is full of light. Shall we? Okay. Let's, uh, let's turn over to John chapter 6, if you will. And so in this chapter, or John chapter 5, sorry, not John chapter 6. Um, so in this chapter, uh, it describes a man. Uh, in many versions, like the NIV, he's called an invalid. In others, he's called paralyzed. Um, and then in others, they just call him ill. And so we know a couple things about this guy. Uh, he cannot move on his own. He cannot move very far at all on his own. He needs help from other people to move. He's been injured in this way for 38 years. Um, and finally, he's sitting at this pool called the Pool of Bethesda. If you want to go to the next slide, we can take a look at that. So this is what it looks like on modern day on the left, and this is what it would have looked like in ancient times during the Second Temple period when he was there. 
with Jesus on the right. And so the reason that this man is at the pool is as it describes, occasionally an angel would come down and stir up the waters. And whoever was the first person into the pool would be miraculously healed. And so I would bet that this guy has probably been at this pool for close to the 38 years he's been injured. Think about how hard it was to move long distances uh, during these times. Now multiply that times 100 for how much harder it would have been for someone who was paralyzed to move. So this, moon, this man has probably been sitting at these pools uh, waiting to be healed for close to 38 years. So that's pretty crazy. And so Jesus comes up to this man and he has an interaction with him that's very different than a lot of other healings that we see in the Bible. So let's look just at their interactions in verses 22 and 23. If you want to go to the next slide, please. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation uh, just for this part. So it says, When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? And so I'm not really going to talk about the question that Jesus asks, would you like to get well? Because I think that's a whole sermon in and of itself, and there's plenty of those. But I want to talk about the first part of what Jesus says. When he saw him and knew that he had been ill for a long time. And I think Jesus is seeing this man's experience here. He's seeing that this guy has been here for 38 years. He originally came to this pool because His eyes were wide and open to the possibilities of how God can move. He said, God can heal me. If I just get to this pool and get in the water, God can do anything. And then he's sitting here for 38 years watching people that he knows, that he must have had conversations and meals with time and time again being healed, but he's not. And Jesus sees this. He sees his experience. And I think he knows this guy's heart could be troubled. This guy's heart could be full of light. Or maybe his eyes have become unhealthy and his heart has become to be full of darkness. So he asks him, would you like to be well? And the man's answer, I think, shows us what state he's in. He says, I can't, sir. The sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. So this man is literally looking into the face of the living God. And he says, I can't get well. He's at this position where his eyes are so stingy. They're they're so short-sighted. He says, this is the only way God can heal me. The only way I can be possibly healed. The only way God can possibly move is if I get into this water. You know, how many times must have this man prayed like, God, please let me be the first one into this pool. God, please, like, just let your angel come at night when I'm the only one awake so that I can try and crawl in there. He started out on faith, and his eyes were open and healthy. 
But slowly he became short-sighted to God's power, saying this is the only way that God can move. That light became darkness. That hope that he had became despair. Lack of hope and envy, probably of the people around him. You know, how often can we put God in a box and do the same thing that this guy's doing? God, I need you to do this and do it in this way. Or I need you to do that and do it in that way. And then he doesn't do it in this way. And then we're like, what? I feel abandoned. Our eyes start to become slowly unhealthy. And our body becomes slowly more full of darkness when it's supposed to be full of light. You understand what I'm saying? Amen. And, you know, I, I specifically chose this story to show you that even an invalid, a man who can't move, a man who has no job, is able to get caught up in this same hurried mindset of, I just need this one thing done, and then everything else will be okay. And if he can get caught up in this mindset, how much more can we? And so this hurried way of life, this, this way of life where our eyes are so focused on just one thing, leads us not to being able to delight and turn our attention towards God. All right, so now let's look at an example of someone whose eyes are wide open and are able to see the goodness of God. So at the end of every gospel, uh, and we're going to look specifically at Mark here, if you want to go to the next slide, it talks about this man. His name is Joseph of Amarithia, and it says this. Joseph of Amarithia, this is Mark 15, 43, is a, was a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. You know, Joseph was different from the rest of the council. The council was hurried to put Jesus to death. They only saw him as a revolutionary who was disrupting their way of life, who was turning tables at the temple. Their eyes were very unhealthy. They were short-sighted, self-focused. But Joseph was different. He was able to go slow enough that he was able to recognize Jesus' power and all the amazing things that he had been doing. It says he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Joseph was going slow enough that he was able to delight and to contemplate enough on God that he was able to see who Jesus really was. In Matthew, it says, Joseph of Amarithia, who was himself a disciple of Christ, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And so because Joseph was wide-eyed and open-minded, he was able to see Jesus and participate in his death and resurrection in a way that almost no one else was. He was able to take Jesus' body off the cross 
He was able to dress him in death clothes, in burial clothes, and he was able to place him in a tomb that then would become a symbol of hope, of triumph over death, of the resurrection of God himself for all of eternity. This man's known this man is known because of how he was able to go slow and to be open-minded so that he could delight and turn his attention toward God in this miraculous way. You know, I've been talking about uh, just these examples of why we need to be wide-eyed and to contemplate God, uh, but I haven't given any practicals. So some some practicals for us. I think in uh, a bunch of different places, uh, God tells us that we need to have his word on our heart. You know, Deuteronomy 6.8 talks about how we should tie them to our arms and bind them on our foreheads. Joshua 1.8 and Colossians 3.2, they talk about how we need to be constantly contemplating God's goodness, to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, to think on heavenly things above. And so some practicals are just, we need to put God's word in our way throughout our days if we want to be able to stop and to look up and to be wide-eyed and see God. And so I've seen this done in, in plenty of ways. I, when I was in uh, college, I put a bunch of sticky notes on my wall. So whenever I opened the door, I would see the sticky notes in my room. And they would just say, I am, and then they would just be scriptures about what God tells me I am. I am loved. I am powerful. There is nothing that separates me from the love of God. Uh, Just all these different things. I think that's a very powerful way of of being stopped. I think finding a buddy that you can text with and just randomly send scriptures to throughout the week or voice memos. I love how Bobby Arsenal does this for so many of the men. How he just sends voice memos of encouragement that make us stop and listen and open our eyes and slow down and say, wow, I'm able to delight and contemplate with God. One of my favorite things that uh, I've been doing, and I know a couple other people in the campus ministry have been doing recently, is setting timers to pray. So just at a random time in the day, a timer goes off, and no matter what you're doing, you just stop and you pray. And it helps us to be slow and recognize that God is good, no matter what the situation is. And so those are some practicals, but I think really the biggest thing is gratitude. And Sajin talked about this all the time, that gratitude is a practice of discipleship. If we want to be like Jesus, we need to be grateful. Amen. So kind of to end off, I have one more story uh, for us. Uh, This also took place at the Shepherd Center. uh, And so this building was seven stories tall. And the cafeteria was in the basement. Um, And lunch took place, I think, every day around, I think it was at 12. It could be like 1230 or something. But that meant all the appointments were scheduled around lunch. They would end at 1155. And you can imagine this hospital is for people with mobility 
impairments. So, so many of them are using wheelchairs and walkers and canes. And really, only the staff is able to use stairs. Everyone else is using the elevator. So 11.55 comes, and everyone gets out of their appointments and rushes as fast as they can to the elevators to get to lunch. It's something that I did. It's something that all of my peers did. We would rush to the elevators as fast as we could just to end up waiting. We would hurry up to wait. And that is just like a microcosm of what life is so often. You know, we just hurry up to end up waiting. We're, we're rushing to church, hurrying just to get stuck at a red light or get stuck in traffic. You know, you, you hurry to come home from work only to have to cook yourself dinner. It, it, it's all these things. And I remember I would get so frustrated at these elevators. I'd be like, this is, what idiot designed this building? Like, this is terrible. Who thought this was a good idea? Why are we not just staggering lunch or staggering appointments or something like this? But I wasn't going slow. I was in this hurried mindset. And it's because I was in this hurried mindset that I wasn't able to stop and contemplate and delight. I wasn't grateful. If I was, I would have recognized that I was at the best rehabilitation hospital in the country. They were the people that literally brought me from death's door, from being on a ventilator and not being able to move to where I'm at now. I would have realized I was in a first world country that actually has buildings with elevators that I can actually move around in. And mostly, I would have realized that I was surrounded by people who were going through the same suffering as me and used the opportunity to get to know them and to spread the love of Christ with them Amen. even more. You know, first, or Second Peter, sorry, chapter 1, and we'll end here, says this. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. God's divine nature, his goodness has given us everything we need. We just need to go slow enough that we can open our eyes and see it. And then we can truly delight and turn our attention towards him. Amen. Amen. That's everything I have for today. Thank you.